turn with me, please, to First Peter, First Peter chapter one, and I'm going to read for you the first twelve verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined with fire, may be proved genuine and may result in the praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would be our teacher, you would be our encourager. As some of us here might need encouraged, Lord, then please encourage. As some of us might need challenged and changed in our way of thinking and our way of living, Lord, challenge us then. And may it be that as you open this word to us, that we would know that not, we've not been spoken to by a man, but by the voice of the living God. So, Lord, minister to us, we pray in your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. As you might have gathered by our brief interaction, Ian and I actually go back a long time. In fact, we were both young men together in the same congregation in the 1980s. We were in St. George's Tron. We were both very young. And it makes me realize that given that that was in the middle of the 1980s, we're now much older than I hope you think we look. Um, but back in the 1980s, and it's one of these Sundays which I remember crystal clear, one of these Sundays where God was present, one of these Sundays where you really believed God was just speaking right into your life and that of the congregation. And it was a visiting preacher who came to the Tron. His name was Dr. Ronald Dunn. And on that particular Sunday, and I've, got a, I've not got a great memory, but I can remember it as though it was yesterday. He preached on two passages from the Bible. One was from the story of the prodigal son, and the other was of the story, uh, the, the, the book of Habakkuk, or as he called it, Habakkuk. And I thought, my Bible doesn't have a book called Habakkuk. He was American. Um, 
But he used an expression in that book uh, when he was preaching on Habakkuk, which has stuck with me. And the expression he used in preaching on Habakkuk, Habakkuk was that we were to believe against the grain. We were to believe against the grain. And, and what he meant by that as he spoke was that, you know, we, we believe that the Lord is in control of life. We believe that he's a good God. We believe that by the mercy of Jesus, he calls us to himself and so on. But sometimes life just seems to suggest otherwise. And we have to believe again. The grain meaning it's against the rough way that the wood runs. It's believing against the grain. And, and what he said I found just incredibly helpful. But what I found more particularly helpful was this was a man who I learned had lost his son to suicide. He, he was speaking biblically, but he had experienced what it was to believe against the grain. And the reason I'm saying that tonight was because as, as I was preparing for tonight and I was looking at this passage and I saw these great words that the apostle Peter tells us that we've been given new birth into a living hope. In some sense, I, I saw something of what he was saying in this passage and that not now believing against the grain, but my title for tonight's sermon is Hope When All Seems Hopeless. Hope When All Seems Hopeless. It's like, it's like hoping... If I can mix the two together, it's like hoping against the grain. Hoping, hope when all things seem hopeless. And I think that when you break into this letter of Peter, for all the great themes and thrusts of the, of the, of the letter itself, I think these are early verses. Peter is trying to give wall-to-wall hope to those who may be creaking and thinking things are hopeless. The, 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 the passage, the, the, the verse here that's kind of explicit in terms of what they might be enduring, you find there in uh, verse 6, it says, and I'm going to say something about what it is that they are rejoicing in, but in this you greatly rejoice, though now for, and here's these key verses, now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And right here at the start of the letter, you get the context in which he's writing to these different people groups. They are going through challenging times. And they maybe are going through the challenging times that we all go through as human beings living in a fallen world. Because the words that are used there about these various trials is a very gen- general word. It's not something that homes in and says it's this persecution or that. It could be just some of the exigencies of living in a fallen world. But the likelihood is he's also writing around about the earlier mid-60s AD, which means that either Nero has just started to reign or is about to reign, and it's a time when Christians were coming under particular pressure for being Christian, going through persecution, trials of all sorts, normal human trials from being human beings in a fallen world, colds, coughs, cancers, bereavement, relationship breakdowns, And also maybe the particular trial of being a Christian in a world that mocks Christians and mocks Christ, that sees the cross as foolishness. And I think as Peter writes to these people, he wants to just take hold of them and speak God's word to them in such a way that they are just wall-to-wall surrounded with hope. And I think he does this here in, in the sense, by speaking about the past, speaking to them about their present, and speaking to them of their future. 
So a hope about what's happened in the past, a hope about the present, and a hope about the future. And in and, and, and regard to the, the past, if I can put it that way, if you look at verse 1 and that through verse 2, he begins by declaring that he's an apostle. Now, ordinarily, I'm sure you know this, you, I'm sure Ian would say to you, you know, there are no apostles today, but those apostles, when they spoke, they didn't just speak as ordinary men, they spoke with an apostolic authority. And that ap- apostolic authority was delivered out through, in this case, a letter. And ordinarily, what we're thinking there is that that then constrains us to an obedience of faith, which of course is true. But I think also here, what that does is, I think as he encourages these people in what's happened in the past, present, and, the, and words about the future, he's speaking as an apostle. He will be constraining them to that apostolic authority and therefore to live out what he is saying by way almost of command at moments in the letter. But I think also as he brings them hope, as he brings them encouragement, he does so as an apostle, speaking as it were the very words of Jesus Christ himself. And of course, as he spoke in his age and in his time and then deliver that letter to, in a sense, articulate what he's saying so that letter carries that same apostolic authority to us today and equally the encouragement and hope that it brings. And as it goes on here, he says there, he's writing to those he calls, if you look at verse 1, to God's elect strangers in the world scattered through and then various places which we've probably never heard of but actually stretches just about the whole of Turkey what we would call Turkey they're strangers in the world Ian and I both had the privilege of uh, spending some time in America and in order to do that you got a visa and you were working away and under certain conditions my wife and I were there as well and one of the interesting things about that was that you were actually called at times, depending where you were doing your business, you were actually called resident aliens. You're an alien, which basically meant this is not your home. You, you don't really belong here. And that's really what's lying behind this uh, strangers. That they're throughout the, in the world, they're strangers in the world because as Christians, it's not really their home. It's not really their home. They're, they're uncomfortable, as it were, because the worldview, the, the habits, the, the way people think, act, live, is not quite right because they're like resident aliens. Because now they've got a different worldview. The Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians that, they are, that we are citizens. Christians are citizens of heaven. That's our home. That's our ultimate home. Our home is in the kingdom of God. But not only does he say here that they are aliens, which is part of the discomfort and almost the the rigor of living in this world. But he joins that up with this word, to God's elect. To God's elect. Now, when we elect anybody, we elect them by way of choice. We choose them. And one of the great things about this word elect, that they're God's elect, is it very simply indicates that these Christians from all this different area, from all their different backgrounds, have been chosen Chosen and called and brought into relationship with God. And one of the things that he says here about this electing of God is that, if you look through here, verse 2, they've been chosen, so they're elect, strangers in the world, verse 2, chosen 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling by his blood. One of the incredible things that Peter has an ability to do is to say so much with so few words. Not something my congregations have ever thought was a gift of mine. But he's got the whole trinity here active in this electing work of God and bringing this people into this secure relationship with God for their lives in this world where they're experiencing these hardships of various sorts. But the wonderful thing about this and why I think this is past, a note from the past and why it's a word of encouragement to them, is because their relationship with God as Christians is not dependent upon their character, their sinlessness, their ability to do religious rituals well and maintain any particular type of life before God. No, the underlying past, done, finished point that he encourages them with and gives them hope is, no, you were elected into this place, this relationship with with God. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have all conspired and planned and purposed and even uh, put into practice in history and time and space this electing grace that you've been caught up in. God has chosen you. What an encouragement. And the fact that he says that they are foreknown or that by the foreknowledge of God the Father is not to think for one second that that electing grace is because God kind of looked ahead and as God could see, now there's a guy who's going to make a good Christian. I've sometimes had people say, you know, do you know so-and-so? And I've said no. And, and they've said, they're not a Christian yet. They're lovely people. They'd make great Christians. It's not that God looked ahead and said, you know, there's a good one. There's a good one. In fact, it's almost the reverse. It, the, the whole essence of grace and mercy is that actually God, when he calls us to himself by this electing grace, actually calls us completely undeserving as we are. We're we are the, almost the, the, the exact opposite of those who would expect to be called, but such is the enormity of his grace and his mercy. In fact, this word, this foreknowledge that you see here in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, is really a, a word, knowledge, used in the Bible, really to kind of mean an intimate relationship. It's like love. In fact, actually associated words in the Bible have been used of the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. Such is the closeness of the intimacy. It's almost like, instead of saying foreknowledge or foreknowing, it's like saying foreloving. It's almost like a covenant love known in advance. And that's why God has committed himself to a people. Nothing about the people by way of worthiness, but everything about God and his grace and his mercy and his love worked out through probably the sprinkling by the blood here is about a reference to the temple and the atonement of uh, that was seen in the temple and then of course we know through Jesus and applied by the sanctifying work of the spirit and even this if you just bear with me for just a moment longer on this even that expression the sanctifying work of the spirit is not here I think speaking about that ongoing process that we know the Lord does through his spirit when he begins to remake us and remold us into the image of Jesus day by day moment a moment a process I don't think that's what he's meaning here I think what he's meaning here is this sanctifying work of the spirit meaning the setting apart of a people for God 
Now, there's no doubt that the Spirit does sanctify us in that ongoing process, and that might be part of the letter later on. But here, I think it's just that setting apart by the work of God, the Holy Spirit. Christ procures our salvation by his atonement, the sprinkling of his blood. The Holy Spirit sets us apart positionally into this amazing relationship with God. And God the Father has purposed this through his electing grace. Imagine, do you need to imagine this? That you're going through a really difficult time? Imagine that you're going through some kind of hurt, some kind of, if not agony, then maybe angst. And you're looking to God and you're looking to say, is there any hope here in what seems like a hopeless situation? And I think Peter's saying, do you know what God has done in the past in all of this? Here is hope in a hopeless-like situation. And I think he says something of the present as well. Because as he goes on here, he begins to speak about the praise that we bring to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this of the present In his great mercy, he has given us birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's given us new birth. You know, one of the most amazing things I think that the Bible, in all the amazing things that the Bible describes, is about this new birth. Because when you and I think about ourselves coming to faith, if Ian had said to me, okay, Scott, tell me, how, tell me your Christian story, I would have probably said to him, well, this person spoke the Bible to me, this person showed me how this was modeled in life, and then at this particular point, I believed in Jesus, I put my faith in the Lord Jesus, and I repented of my sins, and I went to church, and, and, and so you, you, know, you can imagine the story, you'll have your own version. But the most astonishing thing is, that for me to come to that place of being able to turn in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus, actually, God had been at work. God himself had actually been at work in my life by the workings of the Holy Spirit to bring me to a new birth. That is, where there was no life, you now have life. It's it's almost like the conversation Jesus had with you know, Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. It's, it's Peter's understanding of what, what really goes on in our, our being brought to faith. And it's absolutely astonishing. So, so the, question, the question I want to raise with us today is, you know, when I'm in that situation of incredible pressure, when I'm in a pre- position of incredible pain, and I'm thinking about, as we sometimes might say, where is God in this? You look at First Peter, the first few verses, and you think, it's absolutely astonishing that God, I want to say in the past, but I don't know when that was. It might even be been before the foundation of the world. And now, as he elected me and, 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 and sent his Holy Spirit to set me apart, and, and Christ has died for me, and now in the present, in the present, he has brought me to new life in this new birth. And the most encouraging thing is to think so far, Everything is not only wall-to-wall hope and encouragement, but it's from God. My eyes are being taken to God at every moment of of this kind of wrestling that I have in my time of difficulty and challenge and and pain and and whatever these trials and and various kind of griefs that we have. (laughs) And it's not to undermine or minimize the enormity or the significance of what these people and even we might go through. Because when 
Peter does speak about these griefs in all kinds of trials. The words he uses is actually a word a bit like bereavement. It's like the pain of bereavement. The, the enormity of the trials and the suffering are so real that it's like a loss. It's agony. And yet God has so much got his hand and his purposes on the lives of his people that he brings us to life. He's the one who gives us this life, even when we did not have life in our own power. This electing grace, this new birth, gives us hope, past and present. There's a commentator who goes by the great name Edwin Blum. Blum and Edwin Blum once wrote, No believer should ever feel threatened by the doctrine of election, doctrine of election because it's always presented in Scripture as a ground for comfort. So in the face of persecution, God's purposes for them, these people, are certain and gracious. And so it is with us today. For everyone who believes, so it is also for us. And a, another a commentator from yesteryear, a guy with a great name, Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper tells us of the sovereignty of God in the present. In giving us this new birth, but in all things, and says this, there's not a square inch in the whole dominion of our human experience and existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, mine. Let me put that in a different way. He's sovereign over absolutely everything. Every single thing in life, every single inanimate object, every single living thing, if you turned it upside down, there'd be a stamp on it with Christ saying, this is mine. He gives us new birth into a living hope. And the living hope is a living hope because it's through the resurrection of Jesus. It's not a hope that's based on a sentimental historical action of Jesus. That saviour, Jesus Christ, lives. The hope that he brings to every person who believes in him lives as he lives. It's not a hope that will ever weary or waste away. It's a living hope that is so certain because Jesus Christ is a living saviour. There's a hope in the past that comes from our electing election of God. There's a hope in the present that comes from the new birth that he brings to us. But he also, Peter, presents here a great hope for the future. He goes on here in uh, verse 3 into 4. He says we've got this new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here of the future, verse 4, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. There's this great hope begins now by saying what you're experiencing is not at all. What you're experiencing just now is not the end story. Because actually, there is a great inheritance that awaits. Now, the language of inheritance is probably lifted from the Old Testament where uh, God spoke about an inheritance for his people, which ultimately for them at that time would be the promised land. The language is very similar here. And I think Peter is then for having these believers here and us even in our generation to then look ahead and say, whatever I'm going through now, whatever I'm, I, I'm engaged in now, I know that God is at work in it because he has called me to himself. He has given me new life to live this life with him now. But, but this is not the end story because I've got this great inheritance. I've got this great promised land, this glory that lies ahead. And the great thing about this inheritance that is lying ahead, which is in the future, is that he says it can't, 
It's perish, spoil, or fade. Now, it doesn't take much imagination for any of us to realize just how precious that thought is. Imagine if you were banking on some kind of stability in your life and you lived in Gaza. You know, you, you, or you lived in Ukraine, in some of the cities of Ukraine. Or previously, a couple of years ago, in Syria. And you look at the devastation. You know, if, you're, if your security and your hope and your inheritance, as it were, was based on, say, your bricks and mortar, and then suddenly the place is absolutely decimated. There's no hope in that. If, you're, if, you're, if your uh, inheritance and your wealth and your security and your future was all based on, say, your finances or your pension, and you know, we all know, as the, as the finance advi- financial advisors tell us, it can go up and down. Uh, and as some may be found back in about 2008, it was more down than up. This inheritance can't spoil, perish, or fade But the great thing that it says in verse 4 here is, it's been kept. It's been kept. It's been kept by the Lord himself. And even better, as it says here in verse 4, for you. You see how Peter, I think, is just layer after layer of encouragement. And when you, I'm going to stop in a second because I know we're going to go into communion. But but I think if you actually read through all these verses, even down to verse 12, you'll just find it's layer after layer of of bringing hope where it might seem hopeless to those who are going through difficult times. You are suffering all this. Well, there's a great inheritance which is being kept for you in heaven. And even there, he won't stop because he then goes on in verse 5, talking about their faith, who says, uh, goes on to say that it is being kept, but they're also being kept for it. It's being kept and made ready for them, but they are being, and the word here is shielded, so that they will be ready to receive it. And that shielded word is a word that's a kind of military word, it's a bit like a guard surrounding them. It's God keeping them, hedging them in, securing them, so the inheritance is kept. But they're also being kept and readied for that great inheritance. It's just hope, living hope, in the face of what might seem like hopeless situations. And of course, as he goes on through these verses, he acknowledges that even when you go through these difficult times, it's not without a hope. It's not without a purpose. Because as he talks about this in verse uh, 7, he says, these have come, these trials, these challenges, these difficulties, so that your faith, which is greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. And so that there'll be praise, glory, honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. There's a purpose even in our challenges and our trials today. I don't think many of us, when we're going through difficult times, stand there, sit there, lie there, slump there, and say, oh, I know what's going on here. And and I think this is great because my faith has been challenged and it's been refined like gold. I don't think any of us do that. But maybe sometimes in advance, the Lord gives us a word so that when these come, he gives us the hope to stand. You know, when Ian and I were back in the 1980s and that minister preached these words about believing against the grain, 
I was a young man with absolutely everything going for me and not a worry in the world. But he, God, spoke through that man, preparing me for the worries that were going to come and for the trials that were going to come and for the believing against the grain that were going to come and for the hope for the moments that just seemed hopeless. Are you in the midst of something just now? Know that if you're a believer tonight, the Lord has purposed this relationship for you even before the creation came into being by his electing grace. Know that he has, through the procurement of Jesus Christ, bought you for himself. Know that by the coming of God the Holy Spirit, he has moved within you to bring you to a place of life, of birth, that you might come into relationship with him. Know that he's not letting you go through whatever you're experiencing. He wouldn't do that given that he has gone to this great length out of love for you. Know that he's got a great inheritance that awaits. A great, great glory where he himself will be very present with you. And maybe, maybe you can say with the words of verse 8, though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Because even right now in the midst of the trials, you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And when you handle these elements in a moment or two, you're going to be feeling, seeing, smelling, tasting the enormity of this, the love of God for you in Christ and the certainty with which Peter speaks here about how secure you are, no matter what's going on in your lives. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, may we respond in a right way with our lives as we respond now with our lips. For Jesus' sake and his glory. Amen.